This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Corey Jones and Newman Raja? First, I'll look at the background of this case. I'll move to the timeline of the crime, then offer my analysis. In 2015, 38-year-old Newman Raja worked as a police officer in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, which is just north of West Palm Beach. He worked part-time as an adjunct police academy instructor at Palm Beach State College. From 2008 to 2015, he worked as a police officer in Lantana, Florida. His disciplinary history was consistent with having poor judgment and being lazy. For example, he mishandled evidence, but he had not accrued any serious violations during his time as an officer. During that same year, 2015, 31-year-old Corey Jones lived west of Lake Worth, Florida. Corey had degrees in business administration and music. He worked as a housing inspector for the city of Delray Beach, and he played drums in a reggae band called Future Presidents. Corey Jones had a concealed carry permit, and on October 15, 2015, he purchased a Jimenez Arms JA-380 which is a semi-automatic pistol chambered in 380 ACP. The main advantage of a 380 is that it can be fired from a small pistol, which is easy to carry. Jimenez Arms guns are priced very competitively. Some would argue that they are not made of the best materials and therefore are not the most reliable. It's the type of gun a person would select for self-defense when they kind of want to protect their life. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. During the early morning hours of October 18, 2015, which is just three days after the gun purchase, Corey Jones was driving south on Interstate 95 in his gray 2008 Hyundai Santa Fe. Corey had his 380 pistol in a case on the passenger seat of the vehicle, which is curious because, again, the advantage of a 380 is the size. It's not clear why he wasn't carrying it somewhere on his person. Corey had just finished playing at a bar and grill in Jupiter, Florida, and was heading back to his residence. He had some type of mechanical problem in his vehicle. Mechanical problems come standard on Hyundais. He exited 95 at PGA Boulevard at 1.30 a.m. and stopped his vehicle on the shoulder of the exit ramp. Both a friend of Corey's and a road ranger stopped by the scene, but they were not able to help Corey get the vehicle running again. A road ranger is a member of the Road Ranger Service Patrol. This is a no-cost highway assistance program. Corey decided the SUV would have to be towed. He would have left the vehicle on the side of the road, but he did not want to leave his drums behind. Corey called AT&T Roadside Assistance and was arranging a tow truck. At the same time, Newman Raja was on duty in the area. He started his shift at 7 p.m. driving a patrol car, but at some point, he switched into plain clothes and started patrolling local hotel parking lots looking for people breaking into cars. There had been a few incidents like that recently, and he was trying to catch whoever was doing it. Newman was wearing t-shirts, jeans, and a baseball cap. He was driving an unmarked white 2004 
E-250 van. Newman had a tactical vest with him in the vehicle, which contained a police radio and a pistol issued by the department. Under his t-shirt, tucked into his jeans, he had a department-approved Glock 27 pistol, which is a semi-automatic pistol chambered in 40 caliber S&W. At about 3.15 a.m., Newman was driving east on PGA Boulevard on the way to assist other officers with a disturbance in progress at a nightclub. He spotted Corey's vehicle on the side of the southbound exit ramp for Interstate 95. Instead of continuing on his way to help the other officers, he decided to investigate the SUV. Newman made a U-turn and drove his van the wrong way up the exit ramp and parked perpendicular to the SUV, almost as if he was cutting it off as part of some type of tactical maneuver. It's not clear why he did this. There is the sense that his driving skills were about as good as his judgment. That is, terrible. Newman stepped out of his van, but he did not take his tactical vest. He had a badge and a wallet in his pocket, and of course his Glock 27. As I mentioned, Corey had called for roadside assistance. He was on the phone with them as Newman approached his disabled SUV. The call was recorded. Corey can be heard saying, huh, I'm good. Newman then said, really? Like he didn't believe what Corey was saying. Corey said, yeah, I'm good. Newman again responded, really? Corey once again said, yeah. At this point, Newman started screaming, get your blank hands up, get your blank hands up. Corey responded, hold on, hold on. Newman then screams, get your blank hands up, drop. Corey exits his SUV and starts to move up the exit ramp away from Newman. At this point, Newman fired his Glock 27 three times. He then said, drop it. Ten seconds from when he fired the third time, Newman started firing again. He would fire three more times. Corey was struck a total of three times. He was killed by a bullet that passed through part of his heart and both his lungs. A bullet struck each of his arms as well. It's not clear which bullet of the six killed him, like was it fired in the first or second volley. Newman waited 33 seconds from the final shot before calling 911. He claimed that as he approached Corey, he identified himself as a police officer and asked him if he needed help. Corey then jumped out of the SUV, pointed a pistol at him, and started running. Newman thought the pistol had a laser sight, when in reality it did not. Newman said that he shot Corey in self-defense. Here's what the police found during their investigation. Newman was not wearing his tactical vest. All six cases from Newman's firearm were found behind Corey's SUV. Corey's gun was recovered about 70 feet away from the SUV. Corey's body was found about 200 feet from the SUV. Newman claimed that he called 911 before firing the second volley, but this is not true. The recording from the AT&T roadside assistance call did not capture Newman identifying himself. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 
So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Newman was arrested in 2016 and charged with manslaughter by culpable negligence while armed and attempted first-degree murder with a firearm. He was convicted of both charges in March of 2019. In April, he was given the minimum sentence, 25 years in prison. He could be released as early as May 29, 2040. Now moving to my analysis. Was Newman Raja guilty of manslaughter and attempted murder? This is a strange case in that typically, if one person causes the death of another, they're not charged with causing the death and attempting to cause the death. Here, the prosecution viewed the two volleys of three shots as being separate criminal transactions. The volley that killed Corey was manslaughter, and the volley that didn't was attempted murder. It didn't matter which volley was responsible for which outcome. Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that Newman was guilty, starting with the inculpatory evidence. Newman parked his unmarked van in an aggressive manner. He was partially blocking the exit ramp. He approached Corey's SUV without identifying himself as a police officer. When Corey tried to tell Newman that he was fine, Newman appeared to question Corey's honesty. It would be reasonable for Corey to be startled by Newman's behavior, especially considering that it was during the early morning hours. There is no indication that Corey was anything but calm. His interactions with the road ranger and with roadside assistance did not involve any hint of aggression. There is no question that Newman caused Corey's death. He shot him as he was running away from the SUV. Newman lied several times. For example, he lied about Corey exiting the SUV right as he pulled up in the van. He lied about calling 911 before firing the second volley, and he falsely claimed that he identified himself as a police officer. Newman said that Corey held the gun in his right hand, but Corey was left-handed. The shots that struck Corey's arms were probably fired from behind. Newman inexplicably waited 33 seconds after the last shot to call 911. He can be heard twice on the 911 call yelling, drop the gun, when by this point, Corey did not have the gun. Newman later admitted that he saw Corey throw the gun into the grass prior to calling 911. This makes it seem like Newman was trying to convince the dispatcher that he was still under threat, like he was still engaged in a life-threatening situation with Corey Jones, when in reality, this was not the case. Undercover officers are not supposed to approach members of the public. If they have to, they must identify themselves. Expert witnesses testified that when Corey was struck by the fatal bullet, 
he dropped to the ground within a few yards. This makes it seem as though Newman was firing at Corey long after Corey dropped the gun. Now moving to the exculpatory evidence. From Newman's perspective, Corey's SUV was suspicious, the hazard lights were not flashing, and the driver's seat was all the way back. Corey ran away from his vehicle while carrying a firearm. Anybody would be startled by that. Even after seeing Corey drop the gun, Newman could not be certain that Corey was unarmed. People can carry more than one gun at a time. This could explain why Newman said drop the gun twice, even after seeing the gun dropped. One could argue that the evidence at the scene is consistent with the theory that all six shots occurred while Corey was still holding the 380 pistol. Perhaps Newman lied about identifying himself because of stress and not because he was trying to escape responsibility. This may explain some of the other lies as well. Experts for the defense said that Corey could have traveled quite some distance after being struck with the fatal round, so he did not necessarily fall near where he was shot. When considering the evidence, do I think that Newman was guilty? I think that he was guilty of manslaughter beyond a reasonable doubt, but I do not think he was guilty of first-degree attempted murder. I don't view the two volleys as separate criminal transactions. I think that Newman recklessly provoked Corey, which led to a fatal confrontation. In my opinion, the sentence of 25 years is fair, but I think that that sentence would be just from the manslaughter charge. There's no need for the attempted murder charge to get to that 25 years. What do I think happened on that exit ramp? This is just a theory, my opinion. Newman was a high sensation-seeking police officer who really didn't care much about the rules. He did not understand how to properly handle a firearm. He didn't understand the law. He was a terrible driver. He was reckless. And he may have been racist. When he saw Corey's SUV, he disregarded his plan to assist other officers in search of some excitement. He recklessly approached Corey's SUV, probably believing that he had caught Corey in some type of crime. He didn't identify himself because he felt as though that gave away his advantage. He deliberately did not want Corey to know he was a police officer until he could observe Corey's behavior. Again, Newman was still trying to catch Corey doing something wrong. Corey did not know what to think when he was approached by Newman. Corey had been smoking marijuana and he had a gun in his vehicle. The gun was legally owned, but Corey probably recognized how this didn't look good. Corey did not know if Newman was a criminal, like a carjacker, or if he was a police officer. Newman was sending mixed signals. He wasn't dressed like a police officer, and he did not identify himself as a police officer, but he was screaming commands like police officers are known to do. Criminals usually don't tell people to put their hands up. If Corey thought that Newman was going to carjack him, he probably would have pointed his pistol at Newman in an effort to defend himself. If he thought that he was a police officer, Corey would have complied with Newman's commands. The problem is, Corey had no way to figure out which theory was correct. He was split between criminal and police officer. Accordingly, Corey decided to split the difference. He didn't point his pistol at Newman, but he also did not comply with Newman's commands. Instead, he fled his SUV while carrying the pistol. He probably took the gun with him because he wanted to retain some type of lethal defense option and because he did not want Newman to get control of the gun. Another possibility here is that Newman used those mysterious 
33 seconds between the sixth shot and when he called 911 to take the gun out of Corey's vehicle and throw it in the grass. Corey probably figured that running away from the SUV was a good plan based on the evidence he had available. If Newman was a carjacker, he probably wanted the SUV and would not be interested in chasing or hurting Corey. If Newman was a police officer, he would not shoot at Corey when he was running away. At least, he shouldn't do that. Unfortunately, Newman was both a criminal and a police officer, an identity that did not leave Corey any good options, and one he would never have predicted. I think that Newman put Corey in an impossible situation where any move that Corey made could have led to his death. If Corey surrendered to a carjacker, that could end in death. If Corey resisted a police officer, death could result there as well. This was a no-win situation, which was 100% caused by Newman Raja. Now moving to my final thoughts. Many police officers are responsible, law-abiding citizens who are just trying to do a difficult job. Some, however, are dangerous because they have poor judgment and they are always looking for action. They believe that they are in the Wild West and they can do whatever they want. Whoever gave Newman the authority to go undercover and drive around at night unwittingly gave into Newman's desire for excitement. He wasn't interested in protecting property or helping his fellow officers. Rather, he was interested in being an action hero. The price of allowing Newman loose on the streets was the life of an innocent man. Corey was worried about being attacked by a criminal, but he never could have predicted a police officer would be that criminal. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.